Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Today on Sport Faith Life, we welcome Dr. Nick Watson. Nick is a well-known scholar in sport and Christianity and a founder of the Global Congress on Christianity and Sport. Nick's research is expansive and profound, ranging from perspectives on sports psychology, history of Christianity, fatherlessness, and disability sport. Today, Nick tells us about his trip to Vatican City and the efforts of the Catholic Church to promote inclusivity in sport. Can't wait to talk with our old friend, so let's get started. We're so excited to have Nick Watson with us today. Nick, let's jump right into it. Tell us about sport in your life. Sport, well, sport's pretty much defined uh, my life from about the age of four. I don't know if you have a term in um, America called a sport billy, but a sport billy is somebody who plays um, lots of different sports. And so maybe like you guys, I played all the sports available, soccer, rugby, ran cross country, did a bit of snowboarding in my early 20s. And believe it or not, I did BMX racing and freestyle. And I wore Vans the first time when they were in fashion. <laughs> it's all come back round. So, uh, yeah, I love sport. But the sport I did most seriously was gymnastics, which you wouldn't think from my build, being tall and thin. Um, but from four till about the age of nine or ten, I was a pretty serious gymnast, um, training five, six times a week, two or three hours a day. All became a bit intense, uh, and so I packed that in about nine or ten, but it gave me a great basis for playing other sports. Um, Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah, I love that. I love that term, sport billy. I think we need to bring that mm. across the pond here, Brian. What do you think? That's a, that's a good phrase. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks, Nick, for that. Appreciate it. How about faith in your life? Faith. Um, I became a Christian in China 20 years ago in a communist-looking um, tower block on the outskirts of Beijing. Um, the Lord had been chasing me down for a couple of years, but that was the point that I finally realized I needed his grace and bent the knee, as they say. And... Um, but sport, sport has actually played a part in my conversion in the sense I, um, I did my undergraduate thesis at university on sport and religion, but religion broadly conceived. And I got somebody to bind the thesis for me, an old boy who had this little book binding business at the end of his garden. And uh, when I went to pick it up, he'd obviously had a look at it and he started saying to me uh, are you interested in religion and all these things and um and then he started to talk to me about jesus with tears streaming down his face <laughs> then he started to pray in tongues which i didn't even know what it was at the time and long story short um that was a significant point in my journey this guy really challenged me to respond to christ really and commit myself to him so 
you can't you can't kind of separate out sport and religion in my life if you will and, and then obviously for about 15 20 years I've, I've been involved in the being blessed to be involved in the sport faith thing well nick you and i have known each other for a long time and you started with sports billy and found your way to speaking in tongues and i i know that that just scratches the surface uh in terms of the interesting life that you've led to this point um but they they prime the pump really to get us thinking more about you and about your work and so i i wonder if i can ask one thing that uh you might want our listeners to know to help them get to know you uh one one unusual hobby maybe experience what what would you say would help our uh, listeners get to know you? Um, well, I worked before before I studied in my late twenties. I worked as a printer for ten years, and the irony was there that I printed books, and then obviously as a professor, you've got to write books. <laughs> so that's something people probably wouldn't know about me. Uh, and now I'm working as a personal assistant for a man with autism, which is a really um, rich experience. And I'm finding a lot about myself out from doing this job. Um, yeah, there's two two little snippets. Yeah, I, I love those. I, I think that'll help us launch into maybe some, some new things because, as you mentioned, your uh, academic career uh, has... Um, actually been pretty wide ranging. And I would say in some ways in the sport and Christianity world, you've been one of the, uh, I would say forefathers in pulling it together, even though you're still a young guy and you've uh, spent time really convening a large group of scholars and, and actually serving as the conscience of sport and, and Christianity as well in raising new issues and topics and setting a vision. So I just wanted to thank you publicly for that work and, uh, talk to you a little bit about some new directions for you. So you've been out of the sort of academic world for the past four or five years, and now um, you've started to dip your toes back in, uh, particularly with with a conference at the Vatican. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So conferences at the Vatican are unlike any other academic conferences. Um, I attended one in 2014, but that wasn't within Vatican City. And that was on pastoral care through coaches and chaplains. And, and that was excellent. And that was unique. But the conference I attended this year in 2022 with my wife, and she attended all the sessions, um, really was unique because it was within Vatican City itself. And as you probably know, Vatican City is its own state with its own laws and its own police force. It's, an, it's just an incredible thing. And it's, it's soaked in Christian history, of course, the Vatican and, and all its buildings. Um, the delegates were looked after exceptionally well by Santi, the, the um, convener. I mean, just to give you a taste of the, the opportunities we had and the experiences and how blessed we were, um, I mean, the, the keynote speakers were translated into four or five languages. Um, we had a private viewing of the Sistine Chapel and a talk in the Sistine Chapel. 
and there was a gala dinner in the Vatican museums, an audience with the Pope, and one other thing, can I remember? Oh yeah, there was an incredible display of sporting ability by people with intellectual and physical disabilities. But it was just a, it was an utterly unique experience, and I just felt absolutely blessed to be there with my wife Kate for for the duration of the event. Well, it's great to hear a little bit about that. You mentioned a, a visit from the Pope. You know, you remember at the Second Global Congress, we had a visit from Tim Tebow and. Some would say that there's there's some equality there. Uh, of course, that's blasphemy. Nevertheless, tell us a little bit about some of the key themes uh, at the event. Okay, well, just to give you a little bit of context first, there was 250 people there from 40 nations. And a little bit like the Global Congress, which the Sport, Faith, Life um, website and, and movement promotes um there was people from all different backgrounds so there was academics there was senior executives from the special olympics paralympics um uniseco all sorts of different people there was people who led charities there was professional and amateur athletes disabled and non-disabled so it was an incredible mix and collaboration between people but in terms of themes it, it was very much about inclusivity and including everyone. So we're thinking here about intellectual and physical disabilities. We're thinking here about refugees. And there was a declaration published on the opening day of the conference, and which is now available for everyone online, which spells out the key aims. Um, but some of the things, because, because of the clout that the Vatican has, and all of the connections, they were mapping the aims of the declaration and the summit, as they called the conference, to international sustainability goals and um, Olympism, you know, the, ideolo the ideology of uh, the Olympic Games and the Olympic Charter, thinking about social responsibility and cultural engagement. So the themes were very broad and grand in terms of their aims. Um, you had the typical, when you're thinking about disability, you had the typical things around inclusivity, participation, barriers, social policies, quality in provision and, and funding, all these sorts of things. And something that I think struck delegates was the, the president of the International Paralympic Committee and the chairman of the Special Olympics, they both made this point. And I just remember it, they said, 1.2 to 1.5 billion people in this world are disabled, depending on which statistics you look at. But that's about 15% of the global population. And it's not all right that provision and equality and funding and everything is far inferior than in the big business, able-bodied sport model. And that was something which came out a lot through the conference. So... They were the themes. This isn't a criticism of the event that they didn't cover these themes because you have to have certain parameters and you know focus and scope. But two things that I think maybe that could have been tabled or tabled at another event is the difference between inclusion and belonging 
I think inclusion can be used in political rhetoric and in declarations and things, um, but that doesn't equal belonging. Now, John Swinton from the University of Aberdeen wrote a great essay on the difference between the two, and he makes some really pertinent points saying that when somebody comes to your church and they have an intellectual disability, does anybody invite them home for tea or lunch? And if, they, if they're not there, are they missed? And if they're not, then they don't fully belong to that community. And that really struck me because we had somebody attending the church that I attend with intellectual disability, and it never crossed my mind to invite him and his carer back for tea. Whereas I might have um, invited back a middle-class family with two kids like mine. So, yeah, so there's that. There's the inclusion belonging thing. And then the other thing is the prophetic potential of individuals and groups of athletes with intellectual and physical disabilities, the prophetic potential to challenge and question the status quo in the big business model of sport. Uh, they're the two things, I think, weren't at the event but again it's not a criticism um but just something that i've read about in the theology of disability literature so i think the church has a unique role to play in helping us think this way and and the catholic church particularly has um spent some time thinking about inclusivity and maybe not as much about belonging in the way that john swinton has uh described it i'm just wondering when we think about sport particularly, uh, Nick, and I know some of the work that you've done has, has sort of challenged sport in certain places, where has belonging um, been done well? Or do you have any examples of belonging um, and inclusivity uh, really um, surfacing in good ways, in, in positive ways that, um, that can inspire, but also challenge all of us to, to think about it in a in maybe a new way mm. the first example that comes to my mind is an initiative launched a few years ago by the special olympics movement i think led by tim shriver and i think it's called the unified sports program and basically they get able-bodied people and people with disabilities to play competitively, competitive being an important term there, competitively together. So there is real equality and belonging and togetherness in the team. I personally haven't experienced that, but I would think that would be a really enriching experience. And I, and I think it's an excellent model as a starting point to try and move from inclusion to belonging. So unified sports teams in, in the U.S. are becoming more and more prevalent, more and more schools, more and more um, communities uh, seem to be engaging in sport this way. And so it's interesting that that's what you you, you mentioned in response to Brian's question, Nick. I'm, I'm curious, um, with the work that you've done on sport, Christianity, and disability, so theology of disability, wh what drives that for you? Why that as an area of, uh, of scholarly intrigue? Mm -hmm. Well, in 2010, I'd been writing for a while on the theology of able-bodied sport. And 
one of the governors of York St. John University, Bishop David Smith, who's now retired, he, uh, he'd got hold of one of my books and, and he wanted to talk to me about it. And so we met for coffee at his house and he said to me, this is all great, Nick, but my daughter's got a learning a disability. And, um, you know, what about people with disabilities? I, I kind of didn't think much about it. I just said that that is a, a valid area. Um, I personally aren't really interested in this topic. And then being married to uh, a dentist who um, works with people with intellectual disabilities, when I told her about it, she started to challenge me a little bit on this. Um, and anyway, and then I had this conviction to start reading in this area. I started to read in this area and I found the work of Henri Nouwen, John Vanier, John Paul II, John Swinton, Brian Brock up at uh, University of Aberdeen, contacted them. And I was inspired and passionate as I read about you know, how how different the theology of disability sport is or the theology of disability to the theology of able-bodied sport. I then spent three days in a large community in Liverpool, which is a community for people with intellectual disabilities and carers. And that gave me an embodied experience uh, I'll tell you one story that really struck me. Um, they said the Lord's Prayer after a, a meal. So the, the, the funny thing was you sat around a table and as you can imagine, there's people making loud, incoherent noises, there's spit, there's food being thrown, there's all sorts of things. This is this is messy. And then they, they were arguing about who was going to lead the Lord's Prayer and shouting at each other. And, and a man came up to me, I'll just call him Robin. And Robin came up to me and he came right close to me and shook my hand and looked me in the eye and said, God bless you. And anyway, next day I was sat in a cafe reading Amos Young's book on the theology of disability, thinking I'll take a bit of time out. And all of a sudden I felt somebody about an inch from my face and I turned to my left and Robin was right in my face and right in the middle of this cafe he just got hold of me with his cheek pressed against my cheek and just held me for about 15 to 20 seconds <laughs> i was completely undone in that moment i was completely undone mm -hmm. i didn't know what to do so i just put my arms around him and give him a hug and then the funny thing was he looked at me and said see ya went off and had his <laughs> lunch <laughs> so it's all right reading about the theology of disability, but to actually have an experience like that is is even more inspiring. And, and I've had other experiences as well, but I hope that answers your question to some degree. Yeah, thanks for that, Nick. And you talk about an embodied experience uh, in a community with of disability or in disability and... I think you've invested yourself in this and you've invested yourself as, uh, you, I don't know if you would describe yourself as an expert, but you are drawing on the experts as you learn about it. But one thing that you have spent a lot of time in, in an embodied experience and in an academic experience is sport. And I wonder when you think about um, efforts to 
help um, bring belonging into disability uh, communities uh, and able-bodied communities and, and blend that line, why sport? Why, why uh, spend so much time on something that really is, um, I'd say, it ha- it's a double-edged sword, right? It, it can cut in good ways and it can cut in bad ways. Um, why, what is it that sport brings to this conversation that's unique and beneficial for uh, communities and people with disabilities? Um. I think sport is unique in providing an opportunity to get alongside people in a very natural way. Like if you start playing in a team or you're a coach, whatever it might be. And another passion of mine, as I think you know, is the impact of fatherlessness in society. And, and somebody who has fatherlessness in their background or motherlessness often they're lacking that sense of belonging, hence why a lot of men end up in gangs, why a lot of women end up being very promiscuous who have suffered from fatherlessness. So coming back to your question, I think that sport is unique because, you know, when we think about men, men typically don't want to sit down and talk about their problems necessarily, but if you can get alongside them on a long-distance run, or it's almost like pilgrimage in a sense get alongside them in a run or build a relationship through healthy banter let's say within the context of sport um i think things can then open up especially outdoor bounds i I think that there's a certain vulnerability which comes when people do outdoor bound adventure activities things like this you're out in nature in God's creation, and it gives an opportunity. I once did a 100-kilometre walk for charity within 24 hours. Well, I didn't quite make it, actually. I only did 62 miles it was supposed to be. I got 50, and I got exhaustion. But that was incredible. I was walking with students that I taught, and the things they opened up to because we were walking together out in the wilderness, so to say, you would never have said to me, you know, in a classroom or a coffee shop or anything like that. So, I mean, I think there's so many things that sport can create belonging, but I think there's a number of factors that dictate whether it creates belonging or not. The nature of the sport, the character and qualities of the leader, um, the nature and character of the participants, um, and is it age-appropriate and and so on and so on. So there's, there's many variables, but I, I think maybe I've in part answered your question. Well, let me let me broaden it a little bit more. As I think about characterizing the, the scholarly corpus that you've created so far, I'm thinking about, and, and what you're engaging in now, you talked about fatherlessness a little bit. It, it, it seems as though um, you're writing about, to use biblical terms, you know, the, the least of these. And I know that's not a, a fully appropriate term to use for um, for what you've done, but it seems to me that that's 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 part of the Christian call, and that in this world of of uh, sport, where we're all drawn to to big time sport, and and that seems to be what what drives much of um, of the complex engine um, uh, that is sport in, in our lives uh, is is the big time the elite sport and. 
And so you go to a conference at the Vatican, you know, sponsored by the, uh, you know, the largest uh, Christian sort of organization in, in the world. And um, you're there. And, and while there are, are social justice, there's social issues being discussed at, at this conference. Um, I imagine that a lot of a, a lot of the conversation surrounds what happens at, at big time sporting events at, at elite sport and how how that makes so much of a difference in terms of how we consume sport. And yet the work that you've done is, although some of it's surrounding you know the mainstream of, of, of sport, a lot of what you're doing is bringing you know some some gospel principles to um, as reminders of us that it, you know the sport is not about the the best and, and the fastest and the highest and the strongest that. That it's about uh, ways in which we connect in, with our humanity to to other to other people and how we live out our lives in in hopefully God serving ways. So, wh- what types of experiences are are you having at an event like that, which is at the Vatican, um, in which you come from a background in which you've you've served, you put into practice some of your words, but you've also you've also done a great deal to try to to promote the interest the interests of groups that oftentimes are are forgotten in the world of sport. Um, what, sorry, what's the nub of your question again? Sorry. What types of experience, what do you experience when you go to a conference in which, uh, about global sport, what is your, what is your experience, uh, being there and, and knowing what you bring to the table is something that's so central to the gospel of Jesus Christ in terms of what you've studied. And yet you're around so much of, 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 Big time sport. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure because I I was a, um, a facilitator with James Park from the John Paul Second Foundation um, organization for some seminars. But apart from that, I made no formal contribution. So in terms of what my contribution was, um at the specific event, uh, I'm not really sure it was that significant. Um, I I met people there, both from big time sports, but a lot a lot of the people there at this conference, because it was on inclusivity and disability and vulnerability, for example. I met a lot of people there who had very common interests to me. I mean, there was Stephanie Reed, uh, a Christian. Paralympian who lost a leg in a uh, well, the bottom half of a leg in a in a boating accident, and then sport became one form of salvation for her and a deepening of a relationship with God. And um, she gave an incredible testimony. Uh, and something else that that struck me there was that there was the High Commissioner from UNICEFCO for refugees. And never thought about sports and refugees. I've seen a couple of books and things about it. But when you think about it, in our time, there's the greatest displacement of people going on right at this minute than there ever has been in recorded history from wars and famines and natural disasters. And and, and we all know about the Ukraine as one example. And he made this point that, Sports are not life-saving in refugee camps, but they're life-giving. So life-saving is food, water, and shelter. But people also need something to do, recreation. And he was saying how central sport is 
within refugee cramp, uh, camps with this huge displacement of people um, across the globe. So not sure if I'll answer your question there, Chad, um, but I think that, yeah, in terms of my contribution, I was just there listening. I was taking notes, thinking I'm going to put that in that chapter of my book and that in that chapter of my book. And I met a couple of people who were acting as critical friends to me and, and things. But there was a lot of like-minded people there because of the specificity of the remit of the conference. Well, let me see if I can expand that, too, a little bit into a future thought, Nick. Um, one of the things I know about you is that you uh, – ponder and pray through your next project, whatever that is, your your career, your um, recreational activity, your service, um, and it, you really respect the process. And I'm wondering, like, as you see a, a next phase here in maybe what, what you heard at the Vatican, but, but maybe even, um, I, th I think that was a, whole, a very unique perspective you just gave us with... Uh, your conversation about refugees and the life-giving aspect of sport. Tell me a little bit about what's what you're mulling over in terms of next projects for you or things that um, have piqued your interest. Well, I've been writing a book for eight years. <laughs> and um, I've just got a first draft. And it's called Sport, Christianity and Relationships, Reflections for a Fatherless Age. Has four sections, one on fatherlessness, one on race, racism and fatherlessness, one on humility and one on disability. Um, what I can tell you as a little aside, writing and, and, and going through edits of the race, racism and fatherlessness chapter has been the most challenging thing I've ever read, the most challenging thing I've ever written. Uh, and I'm still processing it now because I'm getting feedback from um, people from both sides of the Atlantic. And some of the feedback is completely polarized. And I have to make a decision where, where I stand on these things. And, and writing as a white middle-class Englishman, uh, not to say that I can't have a voice in that arena, but I've got to be careful. So that book, in fact, I wrote the title of that book down at a conference on the Father of God in Holland in 2005. I wrote the exact title of that book down. And that book um, has, has been my kind of heart's passion, if you will, above anything else I've ever written. Um I think in part because of my background being adopted and having to work through some of these things myself. Um, so I, I would say that's the biggest project that's ongoing and, and has taken up hundreds of hours of time, but over eight years. <laughs> well, it's exciting that you have that project in the hopper. And yeah, eight years, I suppose, uh, might not be out of the ordinary range for for some masterpiece, uh, you know, magnum opus type works, and so <laughs> we we definitely look not forward to not. to reading more of that. But but give us a sense for um for the ways in which you know you're you're the ways in which you're living into this in a, in a day to day world. You said you're spending you're spending time working as a personal assistant for uh for a man with autism. Um, 
which which gives you through long shifts, you know, periods of time to think to think through these issues. Is that is that where you are right now? You're just um, working through the the review feedback that comes that comes in, or is there still more generative work going on in this in this project? No, I, I think I've actually I had a conviction two or three weeks ago actually to stop because I'd reached seventy thousand words, and I was going to write another section. And I realized it was going to be too big, but I felt, I felt very peaceful that now it's just about tweaking. Um, I needed to add a section on females, fatherlessness and sport, which I've done. Um, and there might be other things along the way. I mean, what I found is that, and this is how God weaves his web in all our individual lives, isn't it? That over those eight years, I've thought, oh, I'm nearly finished now. I don't need to touch that section again. And then I've had a life experience that has changed the way I look at things. So for example, I have two or three paragraphs in the disability section on how working with, let's say his name is John, um, the, the man with autism, how that has actually impacted my perception of disability and things. So, and I've done quite a bit of mentoring of um, fatherless children and young men in church and prison a little bit and things like that. So all of those life experiences in a sense are are in the book. And there's a little bit of personal narrative in the book. It's, it's certainly not a biography by any show. It's, uh, it's a thematic book, but with a little bit of personal insight in there from my life as well. Well, Nick, speaking, um, I think on behalf of the sport and Christianity community, we're glad you're back. Um, and in some ways, I know you never left and you um, spent a little time working with the charity, the Church of England, and uh, couldn't put as much energy into your sport and Christianity uh, work. But uh, even no matter where you go, uh, it's great that you've stayed connected and we are all looking forward to this book moving forward. As we close out today, you know, we're going to release this podcast uh, in the middle of a World Cup, and uh, you talked about a prophetic voice. By the time we release this, uh, England will have played their next match. So uh, you can indicate right now who's going to win. Go ahead and tell us, uh, uh, you know, this is your, your chance to predict. And, uh, I, you know, in a week or so, the whole world will know how, how strong your prognostication is. Here we go. Nick, Nick Watson, England, France. Uh, who's going to win? England, France. Well, if Mbappe gets injured, he might win. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking, but I mean, he's an incredible talent. Um, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I think it could go either way, but I'm going to go 2-1 England. I've uh, got to do, haven't I? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, I love the prediction and we'll, uh, we'll just see how that goes. Nick, thanks so much for spending some time with us on Sport Faith Life today. Thank you. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests. 
so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com. <laughs>